Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about how to invest without getting stressed out, which I'm going to go ahead and say the disclaimer here. This is for entertainment value. I will tell you what I have done, but don't make the mistake that this is investing advice of any kind. I'm just telling you what I've done and what I have observed. I'm going to tell you a lot about some of the mistakes and issues that I ran into in my sort of earlier investing career. And so that's the disclaimer. Consult your professionals out there. And I will also tell you, you know, don't work with the professionals because I don't trust them, but don't, don't worry. <laughs> It'll all make sense. But the, the big thing is this is the legal disclaimer to say, this is not financial advice. You need to do your own homework, do your own research, and hopefully you'll, you know, maybe come to conclusions of your own. Perhaps they're similar to mine. Maybe they're different, but either way, you'll come to some conclusion and you'll have more information. So, this episode was spawned by a couple of things. Number one, I well, I, I had this idea for an episode kind of like this in the past. So I, I wrote it down on my little Trello board where I have all my episode ideas. There's a lot of them. Most of them die. Most of them don't become an actual episode. But yesterday, a very good friend of mine, I've, I've known him for 20 about 20 years or so, over 20 years. Wow. And he sent me a text and asked me, um, you know, some financial question. And it's only been in the last year or two where I've told him, hey, um, I'm probably not going back to work again. I am doing really well working on my own. And in fact, um, I'm starting to follow this financial independence movement, this FI movement. And a lot of my friends are, you know, retired. They just do a few things for fun. Like maybe they own a co-working space or maybe they have a blog, but they don't have to work anymore. So it's only been recent that I've even mentioned it. It's one of those things, right? You don't want to like go out and be too pushy with some of these ideas, especially one like, Hey, Maybe you could retire early or something like that. So my buddy texted me just to ask some advice because he knows that I've I've gained some knowledge in the area and have more experience and sort of studied a few things. So his family has um, I find his family has a financial advisor that they've used for many years, and I've heard of this in several different scenarios where you had their, their parents used it, their brother have, they've all been working with this financial advisor and they were, you know, looking at potentially working with that person. And I basically said, no, (laughs) you probably, you probably don't want to do that for a few reasons, which I'll get into. And he was sort of asking, you know, what, what funds do you invest in and blah, blah, blah. So number one, I generally will almost always tell people, you know, don't work with an advisor who's going to charge you to manage your funds based on a percentage. Because 
let's say, for example, you have a million dollars invested. Hopefully, I'll make this math easy. Should have should have wrote all this down ahead of time, but stick with me here. So let's say you have a million dollars and on average to keep the math simple, you will get a return of 10% per year. So people can argue about that, but it'll keep the math relatively straightforward. So 10% per year and you know, any given year, it could go up, it could go down. You might be up 30% one year and you might be 30% down some other random year. But if you zoom out, usually on a sort of a 10-year running scale, you're probably going to be roughly 10, 9, 10% as far as your ROI, your return on your investment there. So if your financial advisor is charging you 1% per year to manage your money, that is taking away 10% of your return. So if they take 1% of the 10% that you are looking at, you are really crushing your return. And in one year, you're like, oh, it's only 1%. That's not a big deal. But if you look over the course of, say, 25 or 30 years, some long time scale, taking a small percentage away each year for management is going to eat away at your compound interest in a very huge way, and this is where I I should have written the the actual numbers out, it is going to be a staggering amount of money when you look at it over the course of 30 years. So funny enough, the friend that I just mentioned that sent me a text, when we were working at the company that we worked at, I could say it, well, I'm not saying anything bad about it, it was a fine company. It's called Accenture. And He helped me uh, get a job there and referred me, which was fantastic. Met a lot of cool people, some folks that I'm still in touch with today. And he was introduced to a financial advisor, uh, but really it was an insurance agent. And I won't mention the specific company here, but it rhymes with Borth Western Mutual. So you could figure that out. And they sucked. I hated working with them. So one of one of their rackets is, well, number one, they're selling insurance as an investment vehicle. Sure, they have some other stuff. And I set up a Roth IRA with them at one point. But at the end of the day, they're trying to sell you these high-priced whole life insurance plans, which I bought at age 24, which is fucking stupid. So if you ask around and you look at you know, scams or anything like that, these are going to pop up because it really wasn't a good idea for me to purchase that. I thought I was doing a good job by investing. And, it, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. The issue with those is that, you know, insurance agents posing as in, investment advisors, they get a pretty nice commission when they sell those. In fact, those sort of policies are front loaded. So they get paid first. So North, whatever the company's name is, gets paid first. And that eats away at my returns uh, right off the bat. And then when you look historically um, at the returns, it's performed really poorly. It's a really terrible um, investment compared to if I just would have thrown it into an index fund, 
which I will eventually get to here. So I wasn't investing a huge amount of money then, but the primary thing that I bought was that dumb whole life policy. Then I eventually opened, I mean, I was contributing to my 401k through my company as well. And I was maxing that out early on. So I'm not a total idiot, but I just, I didn't know. So anyone out there, if you ever get approached by um, an insurance company to, to invest there, run the fucking other direction. All right. If you have a friend who refers you to an insurance company like that, run in the other direction and try to encourage them to not <laughs> spend and invest any more money with an insurance company. All right. So I will probably, I won't get off that soapbox. I'm sure I'm going to jump back on it again here before too long, but those insurance policies are Potentially, I mean, you can use them as an investment vehicle, but the returns are going to be super shitty and just not a great idea. So one of the things that I did figure out after I chatted with a few of my friends, they they said, ah, you know, why'd you get a whole life policy? That doesn't make sense. So I started doing some research. And the one thing that I did arrive at is once you get past some threshold, say 15 or 20 years with a whole life policy, then the returns will be a a little bit better just because you've stuck with it for so long. So I'm not going to get into all the tables and and, uh, estimates and all that stuff, but that is one of the keys. Like if you start or open a whole life policy and then you close it in say like eight years because you're going to buy a house and you want to pull that money out of there, you can do it, but then you will have um, been crippled by those early fees that you were charged, which again, that's going to come into play. So with, um, I can't remember if I was going to go any deeper with the, the insurance policies, but you get the point. So forget the insurance policies. The other thing is at some point in time, say, roughly 2013, 2014. So at that point, I'd been working for about 10 years. I had no debt, started to accumulate a lot more money. So I was looking and trying to figure out where to invest. And the um, insurance company, they will, the one that I mentioned before, they do have some advising that they will provide for you. So they were trying to, they actually gave me a pitch to manage my money and they would have charged a percentage. Luckily by then I didn't trust them um, any further than I could throw them. And the other part of this sort of relationship that I forgot to mention is a lot of these companies, especially um, Northwestern Mutual, they will ask for referrals. So at the end of these meetings, you know, I thought, I thought they were my friend or something like that. They buy you coffee and we're sitting there. We go through the prospectus and we're signing up for stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is great. I'm going to start investing, you know, 200 bucks a month. This is fantastic. It's for my future. And then they would ask, okay, so do you have any friends that you think might want to be introduced any colleagues and they would just ask and really press you. They would try to get names and you're trying 
to give names, right? So at first I'm like, yeah, I think, you know, this person that I started with, there's some people on my team that, you know what, I don't know if they're investing or anything, but yeah, maybe I can do an introduction. So I did that a couple times and then eventually, right? Cause I keep asking, eventually they start asking for my managers and like my managers managers. Like, hey, do you know any directors who might need help? Sometimes they don't have anything set up. So at that point, I was perhaps I was a little more confident and I told them to stop asking me for referrals and basically they can go fuck themselves because at some point I'm like, I can't try to introduce you to uh, not just my peers, but to people that are two, three levels ahead of me. Number one, that makes no sense. And it's a little bit out of line for me to do something like that if I'm not like personal friends with them. But also... I'm not going to refer you to people uh, and you're doing such a bad job. So what happened was one of the reasons why I was looking for other advisors is the money that they were managing for me was performing worse than what I was managing for myself. So at my 401k or in my 401ks, I was basically investing in like S&P 500, maybe an international fund of some kind and maybe a small amount of bonds. Fairly simple. I think the the most complicated that I would ever have was four different buckets and roughly it would be 25% a piece. In hindsight, I should have been far more aggressive and thrown everything into that S&P 500 fund. It would have performed much better. Sure. The time period that I'm discussing is you know, things have been growing pretty well for the last uh, you know, 15, 20 years here. However, we also had some pretty major downturns, including 2008, 2009, and even still, the SP 500 would have crushed the blend that I had. And by far, I mean, the nonsense that the insurance agent was getting me to invest in was, it was silly. You know, it could have been 15 different funds, um, really, you know, quote, diverse, but it just performed like shit. And then when you peel it back, you begin to understand these insurance agents or other advisors, they get commissions on the things that they sell. So if they come in and they say, hey, there's this new fund, I think it's really awesome. It's diverse because of this and that they might get a fat commission on it. So their incentives are just not aligned with what we're trying to do. So yeah, it's very frustrating. And once I start talking about it and and thinking about it and thinking about the bad advice that I got from, um, you know, various people and the bad advice that my wife was working with a family advisor and he ended up getting, um, you know, canned as well. We fired him. I fired the insurance company um, around 2013, 2014, after we allowed both of the fired parties to give us a pitch. And eventually we just like looked at what we were trying to do, what advice they gave us. And it just didn't pan out, especially my wife had her own 401k that she was managing as well. And our stuff just performed whether it performed better. It was just black and white, clear. They have no answers why, you know, 
they have no answers why that could be. How could me uneducated in this whole field and uh, how did I do better? So, okay. That said, I told my friend, hey, I wouldn't work with an advisor. Here's what I'm doing now. So I currently am investing mostly with Vanguard funds. So one of the cool things with uh, Vanguard is it's primarily index funds. As far as I know, it could be like all index funds in different areas, but they have very low fees. Now, there are other companies now that have are now they have products to compete with these extremely low fees. But the other part with Vanguard is the it's owned by the funds managed by the company. So therefore, Vanguard is actually owned by the customers. So when you think about that, it means that their incentives are always going to be in, uh, aligned with us, the investors who are using Vanguard. So like I mentioned before, there are other companies that have very low index or very low fee index funds. And then you end up with, over time, you end up with better uh, returns via the compound interest because, you know, even if it's just a tiny bit, a fraction of a percentage, it really adds up over time. When you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in 25 years, that makes a huge difference, right? So I'm 20 or I'm not 20. I am 42, 42 flip the numbers around. So I'm 42 and I'll probably be alive for a few more decades here. So it's really going to make a difference when you, when you look at that amount of time and compound interest. And by the way, if you haven't played around with any compound interest calculators, there are plenty of them online. So Google it, throw in some numbers, put in some initial investments, and then maybe your monthly investments as well. And you'll see how this adds up really quickly and, you know, saving a million dollars sounds like a crazy impossible task, but over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, it's not that crazy. It's not that crazy with the help of compound interest and just the length of time that you might be able to invest. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, Vanguard and the specific funds, but we need to hear a word from our sponsor here. Let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Ezoic. Leap is a new product that they have. It's replacing the old site speed accelerator, and they're getting rid of the old subscription model that was with the old product. So now, Leap is free. It's 100% free to Ezoic monetization customers. And basically, it's a robust tool set that works perfectly with the Ezoic cloud to deliver core web vital friendly ads. That is a mouthful. So I think I messed up on the cadence, but you get the idea. The thing is here, Leap is for core web vitals. It's more than just another optimization tool. It's an entire tool set that eliminates the need for expensive plugins, technologies, and analytics. Right, let me say it again. It eliminates the need for those expensive plugins. I know a lot of people will push specific plugins. A lot of them have uh, really annual fees, but again, Leap is included if you're using 
the ezoic monetization. And basically, it makes it possible for all sites using Leap to pass the core web vitals. And the thing is, if you show ads on your site, it's probably going to load slower. But the thing is, Core Web Vitals and Leap, they work together well here. So the Ezoic Cloud works with Leap to deliver server-side ads along with the entire page via the new Ezoic Edge so that everything passes Core Web Vitals. This feature is limited to sites integrated with the Ezoic Cloud and it's not available anywhere else. But the thing is, Leap is awesome. They sponsor the show. Ezoic's great to work with. I've been working with them for a few years. So if you are concerned, if you need help with your core web vitals, check out Leap. It could be the right thing for you to do. So the main fund that I invest in is called VTSAX. And that is the... Total Stock Market Admiral Fund. So the Admiral Fund, basically you have to buy like a bigger amount. I think it used to be like when I bought it, like the minimum amount you could buy was like 10,000 bucks. But now I think they've lowered it to like 3,000. And there is a version that is just an ETF. I think that's Exchange Traded Fund. And it's called VTI. Both of those are basically equivalent. They own all of the U.S. stocks. And that is primarily what I own currently. I actually don't know the percentage, but if I had to guess, it's going to be about 70%, something like that. Maybe about 70% of the total amount that I have invested. And it's just like it sounds. So it's every one of the publicly traded companies in the U.S. stock market. And you may be thinking, well, I'm probably a little smarter than the average person because unfortunately we all think that. So you're thinking, hey, I'm a little smarter than the average person. Why don't I just avoid the really shitty stocks and maybe buy a little bit more of the ones that are really good, which makes sense. I mean, all you have to do is avoid the ones that are absolutely the worst stocks, the worst companies out there. Turns out that's extremely hard to do. And if people could do it, we would probably know their names, like Warren Buffett, right? If you could do this day in and day out, again and again, then, I mean... (laughs) Go for it. It's really hard to do. And individual stock pickers typically are not going to perform better than VTSAX over the long term. They might have good years here and there, but just over the long term, VTSAX or VTI or any similar index fund that is generally the total stock market, it's going to do great. Now, you could go with an S&P 500 index fund, which generally gets the the main the main benefits and it's going to track along pretty well. That'll be just fine too. In fact, um, one of my 401ks and IRA that I had with a previous company, I still let them manage it and I have moved everything over to the S&P 500 index fund that they have. So that's what I aim for. The cool part 
is, um, I believe for VTSAX and probably, I'm not sure if it's every one of Vanguard's funds. I doubt it, but the total bond, the total stock market, um, it, they are going to have fees in the range of 0.4% minuscule. When you look at mutual funds, right? When I was starting to invest in my, I guess in my early or my late teens, I actually had a 401k that I opened up when I had an internship. They allowed us to do that back at Nortel and probably some other companies. So, you know, you hear about mutual funds and mutual funds being great because it's a blend. You're not investing in an individual stock, but with a mutual fund, typically, not always, but typically those are actively managed, meaning there are financial whizzes in air quotes that are selecting the companies and the funds to invest in. And then you end up with, you know, what they hope to be a diversified uh, fund. So it will perform better than the overall market. You do end up with like a survivorship bias where the companies, the mutual funds that don't perform, well, those companies go out of business. And the ones that do perform, well, those are going to be the ones that are around and you'll see like good returns from them. So overall, the point is we might think we are very smart and that we should be able to outperform the market, but it turns out it's really fucking hard to do that. And I will point you towards an interview that I did for my other podcast, Mile High Fi. So my co-host and I, co-host is Carl Jensen, good friend of mine. We interviewed J.L. Collins, and he wrote a book called The Simple Path to Wealth, which generally, in a much more elegant way, elegant way explains this concept in I am trying to summarize what, you know, he wrote in a book fairly quickly, but I think he could probably summarize it pretty well to invest in VTSAX or a similar total market index fund, maybe get some bonds. So I'll talk about the index uh, for bonds in a second, maybe get some bonds if you want to do that. And then just know that you're probably not going to be able to outperform or outsmart the market. And I'm actually very curious, anyone in the audience, please shoot me an email, feedback at doug.show. If you disagree, I would love to explore the topic a little bit more. But as I have you know, chatted with more and more people and people that are I mean, I guess at this point, extremely wealthy, you know, millions, millions of dollars. They, they follow this very simple strategy and it's not sexy or exciting, but over time it seems to work out really well. And the more people I talk to, it just, it just seems to work in, in the, I mean, over the course of, you know, decades, it's, it's amazing. So the other thing that JL mentions is investing in bonds. So I probably held too many bonds when I was younger and I wasn't aggressive enough. Now I'm far more aggressive. And you, of course, with the ag aggressive uh, sort of stock portfolio and allocation, you potentially have more in the stock market versus bonds. Typically bonds are going to be more stable. And I would say over the last decade or two, bonds have 
you know, not really returned very much, not unfortunately, but the stock market has been growing quite a bit over the last 15, 20 years. So the bonds have just not performed and with interest rates the way they are very low, those bonds are just not returning so much. So the good part is when the stock market does take a dive and it always will at some point, the bonds will typically hold their value a little bit more. And then at that point, you potentially would have the opportunity if you wanted to, to reallocate some of the funds. So when the stock market goes down, when VTSAX goes down, you potentially will see the bond index funds go up in value a little bit. And then you can sell some of your bonds and then purchase those stocks when they're lower uh, cost. It's kind of like they're on sale. So you may hear people say, the stock market's on sale when there there's a dive. So quick little side note, back in April of 2020, I had some money to invest and it happened to be when the pandemic and the downturn was right I mean, it hit us hard. Like, I can't remember how much the stock market went down, but it dropped by a pretty dramatic amount over the course of like a couple weeks or so. And it was still down. And I had a, a little bit of money to invest and actually needed to throw it into the market in a brand new fund that I was setting up, a solo 401k. So I threw in a, a fairly high amount of money and then... Uh, it kept going up and it was great. Just happened through dumb luck to be good timing. But a younger, a younger me, I would have thought, well, you know what? The market's down right now. I don't want to throw it in. What if it drops lower? But it was the perfect time. I mean, you can't time the market and I don't recommend that you do it. You might get lucky, lucky every now and then. And that's what happened to me. I got a little bit lucky through um, just the timing in the pandemic and when the market took a nosedive. And then, I mean, it's been a little over a year and it's up. I just looked at the fund a, a little bit ago and it's up 45%. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. Just dumb luck. I mean, I couldn't have planned it or timed it. It just happened to work out nicely. So the, the point is you can rebalance and, and re um, allocate funds, especially if there's somewhat of a downturn and you're using the strategy. Again, I, I would point you towards the interview with JL Collins on Mile High Fi. And definitely, if you have not read the book, um, A Simple Path to Wealth, if I would have read that in my early 20s or even in my teens, I, I mean, things would be so different. One of the things that I felt, and I actually said this out loud when I was um, thinking about firing my advisor from the insurance company, I felt like I, I didn't have enough understanding of investing or the stock market to make decisions with large amounts of money. And it's funny to think about it because at this point I have many times the amount that I was actually investing in 2013. I have a lot more money now than I did back then. And I feel far more confident to invest my own money and make decisions on my own. 
I didn't have that confidence in 2013 or any time before that. I felt like it was going to be better if I could rely on an expert like the friendly insurance agent to help me make decisions. But it is very clear now that because my incentives didn't align with what the insurance agent was was trying to do, it just, it wasn't going to work out. So it's very simple. Um, the book's called A Simple Path to Wealth. And I mean, it really is as straightforward as I described. If you happen to be, you know, maybe in a 401k program where Vanguard is not available, there should be a comparable type fund that is low fee. That typically is something that you can search for in your 401k program. You can just sort all the funds, all the options based on the fee that they charge. And you want to go for low fee stuff. You can, you know, simply Google like, uh, you know, what's the management fee for Vanguard VTI or VTSAX. And then you'll see like what you should be aiming for. And I've heard, I I think there's another comparable fund. Um, I, I can't remember which financial institution, but I think they have 0%. Like they literally don't charge for the management, which it makes sense. I mean, they just buy all all this available stock. So there's no decision-making. There's no analysis that has to be done, but there would be some overhead. Now you may be thinking, why would they do that for free? Like why would they have a 0% fee? And basically they hope this is my interpretation. I probably heard someone else say it, but they hope that you will move all of your money over there. They hope that you will invest in the fund that has a 0% fee, and then you'll bring the rest of your money over and they'll earn money in some other way. Or you'll purchase some other um, investment vehicles, other, other financial products, and then you'll work with them a little bit more. So, I can't blame them for that. If you have, you know, if you happen to like one of those other companies like Schwab or uh, Merrill Lynch, or I don't even know <laughs> which ones are out there, but you, you can check them out. And again, just make sure it's low fee. That's the, one of the main things. And one other thing, when I was uh, texting with my buddy yesterday, he said, yeah, yeah, I, I probably should do index funds. I have too many individual funds. And that blew my fucking mind. I mean, to have individual funds would be so stressful and you know, the decision-making would be very hard where you think, oh, am I keeping this for the long haul? Am I keeping this for like 50 years? Or am I going to you know, dump this stock at some point, get away from the company. Now I say that and my, my friend, Carl, he blogs over at 1500days.com and that he started it because he wanted to retire in 1500 days. So that's what he called the blog, but he actually shares his net worth and his, um, stock portfolio. So he actually loves, um, a few companies and he, invested in individual companies before he discovered index funds. So now he recommends index funds, but he still held on to some of those, which are, I mean, they, he's done an amazing job. 
He's done an amazing job. So he has like Tesla, Apple, Amazon, Google. Like he bought a lot of these companies when they were, you know, a little more risky. Maybe people were excited about him, but he got great deals and huge returns. And actually that's one question I need to ask him. Is he eventually going to dump those individual funds and just put it into an index fund? Now that said, he does enjoy that process. So that is something, right? So if you actually like to investigate the companies and do background research and then buy individual companies and it's fun, you know, I I can't blame you for that. Go for it. If it's something you enjoy, that's completely different. But from my perspective, I mean, I named this episode, um, how to invest without getting stressed out. That would stress me out knowing that funds could go up or down or uh, individual stocks could go up or down. And it's just a lot more volatile than the overall market. Now, the overall stock market, it does have its ups and downs, but I'm generally thinking about things in increments of time of like 15 or you know 30 years. Like I'm thinking very long-term. And if you think about it that way, it's no big deal. And that's why, like I said, if I would have gotten that book, A Simple Path to Wealth, when I was much younger, I mean, it didn't come out until I think it was like 2016 or something like that. But if I would have known that information, I would have invested since I was like 15 or so when I was cutting grass instead of buying cars and paying for college and doing a few other things like that. I just would have invested everything. And I mean, that was in the mid nineties. That would have been insane to actually just invest, invest, invest and have all that in play. Now, one of the other things that I'll mention here is, and it may get a little, a little muddled, but hopefully people will follow along with 401ks and IRAs and other retirement vehicles, you typically can't get to those until you're 59 and a half. I don't know why they did the half, by the way. I'll have to look that up later. You technically, depending on a couple of circumstances, you might be able to get to it when you're 55, but generally it's going to be 59 and a half. So back in 2013, 2014, when my wife and I were um, thinking about our investment strategy and working with advisors and coincidentally around that time that's when I started listening to Smart Passive Income the Tim Ferriss podcast and realizing hey I can probably do really well on my own potentially much better than if I work at a company which luckily that turned out to be true probably because of the 4 hour work week and the Tim Ferriss podcast I realized well shit I don't want to work until I'm 59 and a half and I've been putting all this money into my 401k and Roth IRA and I'm not going to be able to touch that without a penalty until I'm old. So kind of what's the point of that? I want to do things and I want to maybe do a mini retirement and just live a little bit and not be trapped in a job thinking I have to keep working until I'm 59 and a half. So we decided to stop contributing to our 401k, which I think in the, you know, this financial independence community, that's pretty much a sin, right? Like you got to take advantage of the 
the tax deferral and all that stuff. But at some point, right, you have to have money to live on. And if I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to retire roughly 20 years before I could touch the money in the 401k, well, we have a bit of a disconnect. How the fuck do I get that money out without hitting, the, getting the penalties and all that stuff? So we basically started investing a lot in brokerage accounts, which are, you know, those are the, the taxable accounts, those are after taxes. So we would get paid, we would contribute some to our 401k. Um, I think, like I said, at some point I was like, you know what, I'm not going to put any more in at this point in time. Maybe I'll revisit it in the future. Um, I think, you know what, I say that, and then I think I probably contributed up to what my employer would match. So I wasn't maxing out my 401k anymore. I was probably just contributing like um, 6% and then my employer would put in uh, like another 3%. So they would match up to 3%. So I think that's what I was doing. And effectively that was like a a little bit of an investment, but not nearly um, maxing it out, I don't think. All right. The whole point being at some point I cut it down and then I just started investing in these taxable accounts, these brokerage accounts. I'm currently using E-Trade. I think I was using Capital One at some point in time and then E-Trade um, merged with that fund or they sold it. Somehow I ended up at E-Trade. They migrated everything over. So I have things over at E-Trade. I've slowly consolidated things. So I moved um, some things that I had, I guess those retirement accounts. So I had an IRA and a Roth IRA with Northwestern Mutual. And then I moved those over to E-Trade just to have things consolidated in one account. I don't care if you use E-Trade and I mentioned Northwestern Mutual because it is a fact that I did have those accounts over there and then I migrated them over. So just to be clear on that, sometimes I'm not saying which company and um, if I'm just stating facts, I, I will tell you which company it is. So anyway, um, you could use any. Um, I just happen to have things migrated over to E-Trade and the interface seems fine. I have no issues with it and they don't bother me too much. I just do my thing over there. I don't have any salesperson trying to sell me other products or anything like that. So I have um, an IRA and I have a Roth IRA over at E-Trade and then I have a taxable account over there, which is, you know, you could think of it as essentially just like a brokerage account. So that is primarily where I, you know what, I think it's a little bit more. I have a little bit more in the taxable account, but I have roughly, I would say the other 50% in, you know, retirement type funds, things I am not supposed to touch until I'm 59 and a half. The thing is, and this is what some folks will argue, if you need to get to that money, you can get to it. You might have to pay a penalty, of course, in any of the tax deferred accounts, you would have to pay taxes when you withdraw it. So, you know, there are some, not necessarily not necessarily loopholes, but there are some processes that you can go through to sort of minimize taxes or move money from an IRA or a 401k into a Roth account, a Roth IRA. So there are certain things that you can do. I 
don't find that stuff interesting at all. And I know there are certain things, like there's some folks that in, in the uh, FI community that they stop working and their income is very low, right? So they stopped working and they're, they don't earn any money. So they essentially are able to withdraw money um, because they have very low income, but it's weird because they may have, you know, a million and a half dollars in the bank, but they have very low income. So I'm not very into all of that. Again, there are processes. Some people get really excited about doing all this stuff and saving money on taxes. I don't love paying, um, you know, the amounts of taxes that I pay, but I have no issue with it. All right. <laughs> I've, I've, I, I get a lot out of uh, the taxes that I pay and I could disagree in perhaps in politics or some other stuff, which I'm rather apolitical just in general, but it's okay to pay pay some taxes. I'm not trying to get around them at all. Happy to pay them. So um, that said, I'm going down a weird rabbit hole here, but the whole point is you should figure out in your own situation if you should max out your retirement accounts for a while. Now, I said at some point I I decided I wasn't going to keep contributing to a, an area that I, I couldn't get the money for a little too long until I was 59 and a half. Well, I had been contributing to those retirement accounts for something like 15 years at that point. So I had a decent chunk in there. And once you, once you get some money in those accounts, that's the beautiful part about compound interest. When you just keep reinvesting the returns over and over again, it sure does add up even if you don't add any more in there. Now that said, I have now funded these um, taxable brokerage accounts pretty healthily. So sometimes I do contribute a little bit to a retirement account. So last year was a good example. I opened up a solo 401k because I have a company and I have a payroll and I am on that payroll. So I can contribute both as an employee and as the employer. So I can, you know, effectively contribute more than whatever the individual contribution limit is for a 401k. Currently now in 2021, I think it's like 19.5. So technically I can contribute more than that if I want to. And maybe I will. Um, you know, like I said, at this point, I've funded my taxable account pretty well. And it probably doesn't matter as much. It, actually, it doesn't matter if I'm contributing to um, the 401k or the taxable account. They're, they both have a pretty healthy amount of money in them. So quick summary, aim for low fee index funds. That's my, um, that's how I've been successful. You don't have to make any real decisions when I've tried to invest in different index funds. So they may have like small cap or growth oriented or international index funds. Whenever I've tried to make it more complicated and maybe get better returns here and there, even through other index funds managed by Vanguard, they performed worse. 
as I looked at um, a small segment of time, it was roughly three, three or four years or so, I did worse when I tried to diversify and maybe find an area that had higher growth. I always have done better with the total index fund. So I, I thought maybe I'm a little bit smarter. I thought maybe I can outperform the index fund. Turns out I couldn't. So I have simplified and just made it easy. And that, that's the thing. I don't have to get stressed out. I don't check my, my uh, accounts very often, maybe about once a quarter or so. I don't worry about it. I don't have to make decisions on buying or selling. I just aim for those index funds and it's much easier. I couldn't imagine having individual funds and having, um, having to figure that out. Like, hey, am I going to sell now? Because I think it's as high as it's going to get. Just not into it. So um, if you have any questions, let me know. Feedback at Doug.show. Uh, and if you have like other more advanced topics. So that could be very interesting to get into. Definitely check out the interview that Carl and I did with JL Collins over at Mile High Five. We'll put a link in the description for that. And Carl and I also did an episode about the 4% rule, which is a cornerstone, a very important piece of, I guess, methodology and a concept that is really baked into the financial independence movement. And once you understand that and you understand the moving pieces and then the part that JL teaches about just keep it simple with the total market index fund, you kind of have a blueprint that is very, it's very conservative and a, a very good way to approach things. Even if you can't execute on it a hundred percent and maybe you could only, you know, you could only do um, 60% of it right or 70% of it right, you're going to be moving in a direction that is um, so positive. It will give you a lot of freedom and flexibility to make decisions really on your own terms. So I think that could be the lead in to thinking about F you money, that old fuck you money, where if your boss comes in, is asking you to come in on the weekends or do some kind of work that you've just had enough of, you can, you can tell them that you don't want to do it <laughs> and then it'll be okay, which is a pretty cool position to be in. So I think that could be an episode for another day, F you money. Anyway, if you have questions, let me know. Again, not financial advice, just a little story about what I've done over the years. Have a good day out there. We'll catch you on the next episode.